Hello everyone, welcome to Small Biz Tips. So I got this email interview from a uh, like introduction from a good friend of mine. And I jumped on the Zoom with this gentleman and I was blown away. He was just giving me gems after gems after gems. And I told him, I'm like, bro, I gotta have you in the podcast. And he agrees. So Joel, what's going on, man? Hi, thanks for having me, Joubert. Thank you for coming. I appreciate you. So before we jump on all the goodies you're going to share with us today, who sure. is Joe? I'm sorry, what? Who is Joe? Oh, hey, I'm Joel McGuire. I'm out of Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm a recovering attorney. I was a contract lawyer for a little over 20 years, and I was a military veteran. Before that, I was an officer in the Army, and wow. um, a legal client asked me to help him with the sale of his business, and that led me down the rabbit hole to becoming an expert in mergers and acquisitions, as well as uh, integrating acquired businesses and getting them groomed for a profitable, highly uh, valuable exit. So that's kind of the skill set I've been bringing to my uh, professional clients for the last um, quite a few years. So, wow. so before we go any further, thank you for your service in the military. Thank so, you. I love it. So tell us about that. I think you were a ranger. Yeah, I was an army ranger. I was, um, Boy, I had an RTC scholarship to college, and then after college, I became an officer. I was lieutenant, a first and second lieutenant in the Army, and I uh, earned, I was Ranger Class 0894, and I served in Germany, the Balkans, and the Middle East. Wow. And after that service ended, a number of my attorneys, a number of my soldiers told me that, because I was constantly going to bat for them on different things that would happen yeah. to them the course of their lives. And one of them said, you ought to be an attorney. <laughs> the first I ever thought of it was when one <laughs> of my soldiers brought that up. So, so then I went to Northwestern Law School in Chicago and I graduated and I spent, you know, a little over 20 years doing uh, contract law, wow. contract litigation. And I had a, a litigation client come to me years after I represented him and said, somebody just came along and offered me uh, some money for my business. I don't know what to do. So <laughs> I really just deep dove just to help Kevin out. And in the course of that, I just fell in love with it after 20 years of litigation where everybody was at each other's throats, you know, mm. in the transaction, everybody's trying to get the best, you know, outcome for themselves, but everybody's way more worried about getting the transaction done. And I yeah. found just so refreshing. And that's been the the world I've been living in ever since is coming across people like you and just trying to Part of the joy of doing this is just listening to situations and then trying yeah. to add some value to that. I, I get a lot of I get a lot of personal satisfaction out of being able to do so. I notice a pattern. Someone you you you're helping people right in the military. Somebody said you should be an attorney, and you go and get it done. And you're helping a client, and then I need help my business, and you go and get it done. So I'm seeing a pattern from you going from one industry to another. I'm curious, what has been that? Uh, that mindset that you had and the skill set that you used when you were in the military to becoming an attorney to now being the M&A space. What is that thing that you, you know, that's been transitional throughout that time period for you? Well, one common denominator is determining and following systems to the letter. I'm mm. kind of like Forrest Gump when it comes to following a system. I'm to the letter. And that's what I really like Really, the M&A space, to, you know, finding, negotiating, yeah. closing, integrating, growing, and exit grooming a business for sale. That's a systematic kind of approach. 90% of any from source to exit situation is going to be the same. And that's how combat planning was. You know, combat, okay. whether it was a reconnaissance or a raid or an ambush, 
it follows the same set of warning order through operational order through you know movement to the preliminary position to the reconnaissance then back to refine wow. plan and then you execute and then you you know it's it it reminds me of the of structure that. yeah the structure <laughs> is the same it turns out i've got a good mind for finding and following you know a structured plan and it works out really well in the in the M&A space and being a strategic advisor i'm not just do M&A on buy and sell yeah. side i help go ahead you you had company i help a company if they do acquire a business i help them integrate it most companies don't do that they just acquire a business and think everything's going to be fine and they don't and it's not necessarily you got to set it up for success right away as soon as you get it mm. and then I'm after you do, <laughs> but if you do it's almost foolproof if you buy an already successful business and you integrate it properly it's one of the wisest business decisions you can do when you're in the lower middle market space i mean it's what wall street's been doing for 30 40 years mm. that's the way they've grown is, is through acquisitions so but it's a tactic that the lower middle market and small business sector can do just as well if they, you know, with a few tweaks to the the overall parameters. Let's talk about that, right? Um, there's a lot of people that buy businesses, right? We have buyers that listen in. We have entrepreneurs, business owners that listen in. A lot of people don't talk about what happened after you buy the business. So mm -hmm. tell us more, what's this process when it comes to that integration, like you mentioned earlier? Well, it starts actually before the deal's closed. In okay. the due diligence phase, the due diligence consists of legal and financial due diligence. Everybody focuses on that, but there's a commercial due diligence questionnaire and set of things you look into. And if you do commercial due diligence right, it sets you up for integration and it also sets you up for post-closing growth. So yeah. in commercial due diligence, like one of the things you're determining in commercial due diligence is who are the key employees and suppliers and customers of this business yeah and with regards to you the employees who's going to run the business uh for you if you're going to be mm -hmm. an owner, investor if you're going to be an owner operator it's still important too but one of the key goals of any proper integration is um determine determining the business's life after the founder owner leaves you know if mm -hmm. you do that correctly and you go and you you know, if you want, if you come at it, recognizing that the value of any business is its staff and its employees and its systems yeah. processes that are, you know, individualized and in all the employees, part of the integration is getting to know that, making sure everybody knows that you recognize that that's the value and that you're going to preserve that and build on it. Um, and then also just determining, like, for instance, in my case, I don't, I'm an operator of any of the businesses that my business partnerships and private equity fund acquires. So okay. a key factor is determining who's going to be the general manager that runs the day-to-day. -day. It could be an internal promotion of somebody that the owner relies on that knows the business inside and mm -hmm. out. It could be an external hire of someone that a staffing agency or uh, someone in your network helps get to run the day-to-day, -day, or it could possibly be the owner. It, the owner in some certain circumstances is an appropriate um, if there's an ability and willingness to continue operating the business under another organizational framework, then that could be a possibility. But we generally like to promote from within. I love it. I love it. Now, I, I want to go back. You and I had a conversation, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago about uh, when it comes to raising capital and building a team around you. T tell us more about it. I think that's so valuable. A lot of people don't think about it. They're just like, I need an investor. I need an investor, but don't really think about 
how do I raise capital properly? How do I have the right structure and team around my on me to make sure that you know I'm able to raise the amount of capital that I want if I haven't done certain things yet? So tell us more about that. I think you call it a board of advisor. Sure, I'd actually take it a step before that, which is yeah. I would encourage every owner of a business that operates that business to take a self-assessment and really determine there's three types of people that get involved and start businesses. Mm -hmm. They're either they have an artistic bent or they're an entrepreneurial or their manager. That's mm. where they get their pleasure. That's where their natural kind of uh, aptitude is at. And when they try to be something they're not, it tends to be hard. That's most yeah. people that are burned out in their business. It's because they're an artist who likes to create, who likes to, who likes to take ideas that they come up with that are visionary and genius and then see them become reality. But they're not necessarily yeah. the entrepreneur that's good at building investor and strategic advisor teams. They're not necessarily the manager who loves being in the day-to-day -day grittiness of setting schedules and monitor employees mm. and dealing with customers. So the first step I would dare say is have an honest assessment of, of what you are and then just find the other people that are the other things you are not. Get gotcha. that get that good collective operative team of artists to provide the ideas, manager to implement them in day-to-day -day operations, and entrepreneur who has the long-term strategic vision with investors and above the business thinking that can uh, do acquisitions and any number of other things to, you know, to mm. get you to the next level. You need that team. And once you have that, then it's a good idea. Then you can start looking. Then investors will probably take a chance on you because gotcha. there's there's angel investors. There's people that are just made a good amount of money and they just, uh, out of a degree of altruism for the world, they want to help out people that were in the position they were. So they yeah. bring not money, but they bring industry expertise in the particular type of business you have. And there's angel investors in every single type. Um, you could also do a private equity fund where you form a general partnership and that team we talked about is also your partners in the general partnership that has a mid office and a back office that helps raise money and, you know, do legal compliance. And then you go oh. out and you raise investor funds. There's a lot of investors out there that are looking for a quality deal. You know, they're sitting on dry powder, There's trillions of dollars in dry powder money that they would like to invest. They just don't yeah. have a deal in place. Um, and the world needs you. I mean, there's a lot of business owners that, Nine out of 10 businesses will never sell and they're just going to close. Mm. You know, there's a lot of business owners that really would rather have moved on. They're, they're old, tired, sick, dying, bored, or just yeah. like something else. And they could use a quality acquirer who's going to not only preserve their legacy, give them a fair consideration for the business they've built, but also take care of their employees and their customers and then take the business to the next level. That's what I take pride on with my business partnerships and my private equity fund is that's what we do. We, uh, you know, we have the operational and strategic expertise to, okay. to recognize what the value is in the business, build on it so that the, the legacy that the owner uh, created can yeah. preserve for another 30 or 40 years. And they can go on with fair consideration for their business and while still going on to enjoy retirement or on to their next endeavor. Huh. I, I, you mentioned a couple of things here. I want to, I want to dive to it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have your own private equity fund. Um, I, I think it's a mysterious world for a lot of people, right? Cause you hear the word PE, but nobody really knows what's going on behind closed door. So you mentioned back office, uh, and front. So 
break that down. What do, what do you mean by back office and front office? Well, there's three offices in a okay. private equity fund, the general partnership of a private equity fund. Yeah. There is a front office that conducts the operations that gets the returns. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm speaking super general here, but then, then the yeah. middle office is generally where the fund manager is. And that's the person who directly interacts with investors, gets investors uh, to become limited partners who invest uh -huh. in limited partnership from which the front office uses those funds for operations. Gotcha. The fund manager is like the face of the fund, the leader of the fund who, you know, keeps in investor relations at a, at a high level. And okay. then there's the back office, which is, think of that as the accountants and lawyers. There's a lot of regulations about mm. taking somebody else's money, putting it to work in either mm -hmm. the private capital markets or the public markets, and then getting them returns in terms of reporting, in terms of disclosures, in terms mm -hmm. of, and the back office is the one that makes sure we're completely in compliance with, with all the regulations that are, were put in place for a good reason. You know, they want to yeah. make sure. The SEC wants to make sure that investors are fully apprised of yeah. the risks of what they're doing and what could go well, what could go bad. And if they do, yeah. uh, that's what the back office is designed to do is make sure we're, we're meeting all that. I love it. I, I love the simplicity that you break it down for us. That is super valuable, which takes oh. me to my next questions, right? Because now I'm I'm this is, Total assumption. I'm assuming there's different tiers in PE firms, right? Like what are some of the tier in PE firms? Is there like tier one? They're only dealing with this type of businesses, tier two, this type. And then you have like a KKR, which is like massive. Like, is there different tiers on how PE firms go about acquiring businesses? Oh, there's all sorts of approaches to it. Yes, there's a number of different philosophies, a number of different, besides just size of the assets under management. There's yeah. a number of different philosophies uh, for not only the industry, the type of businesses they acquire, but what they plan on doing with them afterward. Yeah. Talk about uh, that a little bit. <laughs> well, sure. And, you know, a number of, uh, lately, the, the for the last 20 years, since the late 90s, um, the platform add-on strategy has gotten, because most private equity firms up till then really only acquired businesses that were relatively large. I mean, 150 mm million dollars in re annual revenue or above yeah. just because they have the management in place to um, continue operations because the private equity funds generally don't get involved in the day-to-day -day or the strategic, yep. but take investor money, acquire a business, hope that it continues to grow to yeah. the same degree that it was before they acquired it. Um, then there's other more active, uh, operationally active funds like me. I, I don't just we don't just acquire the business and at closing tell them to see at the Christmas party and hope everything goes well in the meantime. We actually do the integration to determine what they do well, what mm -hmm. they don't, what they do well that could be improved, what they don't do well that needs to change, what they don't do at all that would really help, and what kind of innovation of uh, and innovative practices they do. And then we have a 12-quarter, three-year uh, strategic mm. growth plan that cuts uh, increases revenue while maintaining expenses. Uh, so that's the second approach to it. But no, you're correct. I mean, a number of them are, some of them are in the stratosphere. I mean, I think yeah. BlackRock, BlackRock's at a trillion, I think. So yeah, yeah. In terms that's, of AUM. That's amazing. Now, I want to go a little bit deeper. You mentioned in terms of AUM, right? What's, um, 
what's the typical AUM for for a PE firm? And people that don't know what AUM is, we're talking about asset under management. What what's that typical benchmark number that any I guess startup PE firm want to get to? So they'd be like, okay, we're getting somewhere now. Like, what's that average that you've seen? Well, generally, it there's no real average. It depends on your acquisition goals. Now, if under fifty million in assets under management, just how much money you've raised from investors is so that's a gotcha. Term. Uh, if it's under fifty million or under, it's considered a micro private private. Okay. Sounds like having fifty million dollars. No, no. <laughs> you're just a little guy. But no, if you know, if you're only buying businesses who's you know that at closing you're paying five hundred to a million dollars each, that's that's forty or fifty quality acquisitions right there. So, but yeah. if your main target is in the middle middle market or the yeah. upper market middle middle market is considered from 100 million to i think it's 750 million in annual okay. revenue businesses that have that much in annual revenue that's a middle market private equity fund and generally they're doing the platform add-on strategy where they use up to half of the money they raised for mm -hmm. acquisition for a platform company that has the entire suite of corporate executives so mm. COO, CMO, CTO, all the different C executives so that that business is ready to go. And then they use the other half of investor funds to buy probably 10 businesses um, mm. that are added on to the that platform. Main. Gotcha. Oh, wow. The private equity fund gets a 200, pays 200 million. If they have 500 million, they spend $250 million on one company that has the full array of staff and executives. And then they spend 20, 10, $25 million deals. And then they add those companies to the platform company for the executives and the staff to integrate into the larger company and operate. So that's a lot of times the play with a platform add-on. And what, wow. that allows, what that allows the private equity fund to do is just focus on raising money and then reporting to investors while yeah. the platform companies executives just do the leg you know the operational duties on a daily basis that is massive i never thought about it that way so it's like they're literally taking the capital by a company that's already set up running everything and just adding boats on so that they show the additional growth that's happening and exactly. now how do pe normally get paid right do they get like a percentage of asset under management like how does that part work well, the most famous is two and 20. There's uh, the general partnership because in a private equity fund, there's a general partners and then there's yeah. the limited partners. Limited partners are the people that just invest in the fund. Yeah, yeah. To the limited partnership. The general partners are the people that actually operate the fund. They take the funds, they deploy it, and then they report the returns and they distribute the returns. Gotcha. So two and 20 means normally there's a 2% management fee. So let's say they raised $100 million dollars that fund would get um, two million per year for that hundred million dollars that they raised. That would go towards to be distributed among the general partnerships to cover expenses and their salaries and the rest. Gotcha. Now, twenty percent refers to out of the returns. So let's say that with that hundred million dollars deployed, there was ten million dollars in in uh, uh, profit in any given uh -huh. year. The limited partners would have eight million of that divided amongst themselves on a pro rata percentage basis based on what, you know, how much they contributed. 
Yeah. And then the general partnership would get two million of that to distribute amongst themselves as per their percentage ownership uh, uh, of the general partnership. So gotcha. that, and sometimes there's it depends. I mean, if God, especially if you're just starting out, it's definitely yeah. gonna be two and twenty. But if you get known as somebody that's really good at what's called creating alpha, somebody that can really get great returns, can turn one dollar into ten pretty consistently. Yeah. You can do even better. Sometimes the split's 30, 70, or if you get to a certain level, if you get a 50% return or more, then it's half and half. So the limited partners, if they get, but remember, you got to think of it is most people, if they just put their money into like a the best mutual fund would just get them 8% a year. So, <laughs> so it, yeah, it's massive. It's massive is right. But that's the negotiations. That's what the compliance, the back office, that's why before we even raise the money, there are private placement memorandums and limited partnership agreements that have to expressly state all of everything I just told you about. You know, we have to expressly state if you invest with us, if we get returns, this is how they're going to be distributed. Same thing with uh, all the risks, all the ways it could go south. And if we do that and they still invest in it, we, that is our rule book that's exactly how yeah. we govern and that governs our relationships with investors so wow this was so mind-blowing joe thank you for sharing this with us now oh, i, I want to go a step further right because you, you work with a lot of business owners uh you've helped a lot of them exit you know you've acquired some of them um what are some of the challenges that you've seen uh guys like yourself that's running pe firms are facing well, with well, that's kind of a couple questions. The challenges of most business owners is the terrible irony that the things they do that make them survive is what makes them not sellable. You know, mm -hmm. most of the time, ninety six percent of businesses never make it to ten years. You know, yeah. and four percent of businesses make it to ten years, but out of the four percent that make it, they made it because of things the owner did and took upon themselves that make their business unsellable because the business is entirely reliant on them. So <laughs> it's as an exit consultant, if I yeah. was ever just to, just to help somebody try to get their business ready for sale, that's a key factor is getting the business to be able to be independent of the owner's efforts. Mm -hmm. You know, the more your business depends on you, the less your business is worth. So that fundamental reality of mm. uh, uh, is one of the key challenges. Now, again, it's if you got a platform strategy whereby if you have a company that has a full set of management already trained and in place, mm -hmm. buying, buying a business that's relatively dependent on the owner isn't necessarily an obstacle because you're just adding it on to the business yeah. that management but in most cases under 20 that's why in most cases businesses that have 20 million dollars or less in revenue are very unlikely to sell to anybody but somebody else who's just like the owner yeah so if it's a plumbing company generally they're only going to be able to be sold to somebody who's also a plumber and just wants to have a business have a plumbing business instead of starting one so huh. that's where that's where we're kind of different we're willing to weighed into acquisitions of that size, whereas most private equity funds wouldn't. Mm, okay. Wow. Now people that's listening to this, but like, okay, how, how do I, how do I get in touch with you? How do I find out if I want to work with you or not? Like what, what are some of your criteria to figure out, okay, this is a company I want to work with. Um, boy, well, 
Because there's two ways that generally yeah. I'll look at that is one, uh, if, if I get somebody sitting across me, I'll ask a series of questions. We'll have an assessment of what's called a certified value builder. They have a an assessment that tells yeah. a business owner after a 15 minute multiple choice questionnaire, just if their business is sellable and if first so, how much as per a discounted cash flow evaluation formula and what they need to do to improve it. If I got somebody sitting across from me, my first instinct would be just to see what they want to do. If they wanted to just improve their business so they can continue owning it to sell it, then yeah. I would consider working with them as a, as a consultant. If they didn't, if they're just exhausted or just that bored and just don't want to put in, it can take two years, two to three years to get a business depending so, on sellable. Yeah. Uh, and if they don't, then we'd have a conversation about whether it makes sense to you know, come to a fair price and under fair payment terms and structure that give them the ability to, you know, have a graceful exit and then make sure their business is handed off to somebody that knows what they're doing with it. So, so I'd either want to buy it or if they want to be a consultant, I think one of my, I would just, because again, if I don't own the business or have yeah. operational control, I got to make sure they're going to listen. They're actually going to do what the advice. Yeah. What you're, yeah, what you're suggesting. That's true. Because it's like 21. That's why generally when we get way back to an earlier topic, when we talked about who's going to run the business as my partnerships acquire, mm -hmm. the owner is generally not, not the automatic option just because a lot of founders are entrepreneurs and a lot of entrepreneurs mm -hmm. chafe at having a boss. That's why they became a business owner. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it works that way with the consulting end too. You got to be kind of humble and just listen to you know, I'd have to really make sure because if I did a if I did a consulting deal, I would get equity, I'd get ownership of the business of mm. some amount and fees. But the equity is so they know that I'm going to do my job. The monthly yeah. fees are so I know they'll do their job. So yeah, yeah, yeah. They're it's truly a partnership. Yeah. They wanted to do it because it is a 21. I've developed a 21 step process that combines two exit grooming systems that I studied and the one I'm certified in under John Warlow, the, the certified value builder designation. I've kind of crammed them together into that 12 quarter post-closing post -closing growth plan. And um, and it's like 21 different steps, you know, you got to do every, some of it kind of is things you would imagine, but other yeah. things not related to revenue increase or or bottom line profit increase. A lot of it's related to things that seem counterintuitive. So, but okay, we we're gonna have to have you come back and talk about this twenty one steps, man. <laughs> sure. Oh, no doubt. I mean, uh, I mean, because some of it's philosophical. A lot of people, you know, with their businesses, they, um, you know, like with taxes, the ideal yeah. thing is to get the IRS to believe you don't make as much profit as you do. You Which know, could bite you in a bag. <laughs> But when, but when the sale price of your business is based off the profit that you have, mm -hmm. you're giving up 10 times more from on the exit than you would save by from cutting mm. or making it seem like you don't make as much money as you do. So, mm. um, but no, so that I integrate all that, whether it's the individual conversation with somebody or in my, again, my aviation business partnership or the home service business partnership or the trucking business partnership, you know, I, yeah. Willing to partner with just about anybody who's an operational expert because I know the the strategic end of things, you know, using acquisitions for ent business entrances and growth, and then also integrating those businesses so they're set up for success and then growing them as per a 
12 quarter, three year growth plan. That's a combination of Roland Frazier's formulas, a group called the Scalable Organization and Jay Abraham. I love Jay Abraham. So I've kind of mashed all three of those together and then exit grooming it as per those three exit grooming wow. systems that I've, that I've kind of got down pat. That's amazing, man. So how do people get in touch with you? If they want to, you know, connect with you about what's going on, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, probably the best way would be LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, okay. Joel McGuire. Background is the exact same as it is here on my picture, but uh, my phone number, you can feel free to call or text me. My phone number is 513-276-9552. Mm. Uh, probably the best email would be M at armyrangeracquisitions.com. Awesome. Um, McGuire with the G and, or you can, uh, again, direct message me through, uh, through LinkedIn. So I love it. guys, check out Joe. He's the man, as you can see, <laughs> full of knowledge. Thank you for coming in, brother. Appreciate you. Thank you, Joe Blair. I see.